This week, a new class of antibiotics for deadly bugs, the first for a long time. The last new class of antibiotics developed for gram-negatives actually was discovered in the 1960s and came to the market in the early 1980s. And from one human genome to a thousand and beyond. I don't think 25 years ago any of us would have predicted that the pace of progress would have been as, as dramatic as it has been. Plus why researchers are interested in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. This is The Nature Podcast for October the 1st, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. 25 years ago this week, the Human Genome Project began. Adam's been taking a look at what's happened in genomics ever since. The Human Genome Project is biology's equivalent to the moon landings. It took thousands of scientists over a decade to read the entire sequence of base pairs in a human genome, transcribing our genetic code for the first time. But it had the potential to revolutionise medicine. You wouldn't really want to have somebody working on your car to make a car repair without fundamentally knowing how the car is put together. This is Eric Green, who worked on the Human Genome Project throughout its 13-year life and is now director of the U.S. National Human Genome Research Institute. And yet the way we really practice medicine, you know, certainly before the Genome Project began, was by not totally understanding the human body at a blueprint level. Today, Eric explains, it's easy to forget what a challenge this posed. So I think, I think from the outside looking in, there was a lot of, uh, of concern. Maybe it would siphon money away from other research, and maybe it was uh, going to be a sort of a big project that would uh, maybe not be successful. On the inside, I can tell you there was great motivation. Um, there, it was great excitement. But fundamentally, when the Genome Project started, we didn't really know how we were going to map and sequence the human genome. In fact, not having a plan served the team well. It meant that their approaches could constantly be tweaked to take advantage of new technology. As the project continually evolved, it revealed profound new information about our blueprints. The genome's just full of surprises and, and continues to be even 12 years after the genome project has ended. The surprise we've learned about our blueprint is that human complexity doesn't come in the genes of our genome, but rather in the choreography of how we use those genes. And a lot of that is scripted in the non-gene parts of our genome. But biologists are not ones to rest on their laurels. It seems that every single time we accomplish something, we immediately think of another big audacious thing to do. And what could be more audacious than sequencing 1,000 genomes? Although the sequencing of one human genome gave a useful reference, it couldn't tell us about the variation between different genomes. So, after completing several smaller projects, geneticists began the Thousand Genomes project in 2008. Both the technology and understanding needed to sequence a genome had advanced hugely since the Human Genome Project, making a 1,000 genome catalogue possible. Gil McVeigh of the University of Oxford has been on the steering committee for the Thousand Genomes Project and remembers the state of the field as the project got underway. We were at the cusp of the genome sequencing revolution. Quite a lot of work had been done to characterise common genetic variation, but we knew very little about the rarer end of the genetic spectrum. So the project was set up to try and characterise 
much greater spectrum of genetic variation than we had been able to do to date and in a greater variety of individuals. The project smashed its target, sequencing over 2,500 genomes from across 26 populations. We've provided huge new insights into the number and types of different classes of genetic variation. I think really importantly, we've totally driven the field of genome sequencing in terms of the technology and, and of course, identified a whole load of interesting bits of biology on the top of it. One bit of biology uncovered by the project was just how local human variation can be. Certain rare variations in our genome can be unique to certain countries or even to certain villages. The publication this week of results from the third and final phase marks the end of the Thousand Genomes project. I asked Nature's genetics and genomics editor, Orly Bakul, how the field is feeling as their second giant project comes to a close. You know, this really represents the end of an era of how we've done international human genomic projects. So while these projects are naturally coming to a close, I think there's a huge amount of celebration in our community right now that we have established these basic resources and everyone has moved on to jumping into their own favorite projects. So there are just countless questions that we now want to answer about human evolution, about disease. If the close of the Thousand Genomes Project marks the end of an era, what research will mark the beginning of the next? Really important next steps that I'm most enthusiastic about First, to increase the scale of these projects to be able to reach to populations which may be most informative for particular aspects of human diversity and may help us to understand patterns of selection, human migration and evolution. A second area that I also am really excited by are movements to link these genome sequencing data to clinically relevant traits and to incorporate this into individual healthcare records in order to really be able to guide the course of a, a patient's treatment and preventative care. Eric Green, for one, is excited to see where these next steps may lead. I don't think 25 years ago any of us would have predicted that the pace of progress would have been as, as dramatic as it has been. And it also, I think, gives people like me and, you know, great confidence that, you know, if we keep up a similar rate of accomplishment over the next 25 years, it's going to be remarkable to see what happens. That was Eric Green, and before him, Orly Bacall and Gil McVeigh. For more on the legacy of the Human Genome Project, check out Eric's comment at nature.com forward slash news. And for a look at all the achievements of the Thousand Genomes Project, head over to nature.com forward slash thousand genomes. That's one zero 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 genomes. Coming up in the research highlights, better sunscreen through nanoparticles and the effects of climate change on the bee's tongue. Quite specific, that one. But before that, a glimmer of hope in the battle against deadly bacteria. Searching for new antibiotics used to be a fun treasure hunt. Beginning in the 1940s, scientists would screen hundreds of natural compounds looking for antibiotic effects, and they found plenty. But these natural sources began to dry up in the 60s and some particularly potent bacteria began to develop resistance to the drugs we did have. These resistant bugs, including E. coli and MRSA, are often from a class called gram-negative bacteria. Here's researcher John Howe from the pharmaceutical company Merck. The last new class of antibiotics 
developed for gram negatives actually was discovered in the 1960s and came to the market in the early 1980s. That's a really long time in the world of fast-mutating bacteria. But the timeline might be about to change, because John Howe and his team think they've finally found a new class of bug-beating compounds. Instead of turning to the natural world, they found it in a giant library of man-made molecules. So one of the things that we did here at Merck was we took our um, library of synthetic molecules and searched for any molecule that had antibacterial activity. And as we said in the paper, we found about 57,000 such molecules, but uh, the issue is that we didn't know uh, the target. A good target is any bit of a bug's biology, any bacterial pathway that, when disrupted, kills the bacteria or stops it growing. You don't want it to kill any other cells either, otherwise it would be too toxic to give to people. So, for example, bugs have to make a compound called riboflavin in order to grow. The team reasoned that maybe some of their compounds were killing bacteria by messing up the riboflavin pathway. And that would be great, because humans don't have this pathway. We took you know, a very simple approach. We looked at the um, molecules in our library that were bioactive against bacteria, and then we screened either in the presence or absence of, of riboflavin. The point of this was that if any drug was damaging the riboflavin pathway, the way to find out would be to supplement riboflavin back and see if the bugs were well again. If a drug was killing them some other way, adding riboflavin wouldn't make a difference. And then we could go on from there um, and do further target um, validation and show, in fact, that our molecule did inhibit the riboflavin synthesis pathway. They named this successful molecule Ribosil C and went on to use it to treat E. coli infection in mice. But there's more to do before Ribosil C becomes an actual drug. Here's biochemist Thomas Herman, who's at the University of California, San Diego. So uh, being a chemist and looking at the compound, I I assume that the next steps would be to improve the drug likeness, maybe improve the potency. Ideally, you want to administer a compound as a a pill. So you have to make it orally bioavailable. It has to be absorbed in the gut. It has to be stable when it's circulating in plasma. So the half-life of the compound has to be ideal. So it can be improved by chemical modifications. And then eventually you also want to make sure that the metabolites, so the degradation products of this molecule, are, are not toxic. So these are all studies that have to follow and um, follow up on this, and I'm pretty sure they're underway already. But even with all those improvements, ribosil C still wouldn't be perfect, says Howe. We're not all the way there now with, with this uh, molecule. This, um, it's, we explain it in the paper, uh, this molecule, at least in E. coli, has a fairly high uh, frequency of uh, resistance. Nonetheless, a new class of potential bug beaters doesn't come along every day, or even every decade. And ribosil is exciting for one more reason. Drugs often target enzymes, or bits of proteins. But this molecule targets a piece of non-coding RNA. A piece of RNA that doesn't actively code for a protein. No other antibiotics work quite like this. When they set out with this screen, they did this in a completely agnostic fashion, so they didn't really expect to get an RNA. It was a fairly kind of unlikely outcome, but then they followed through with this approach and were able to tease out this RNA target, which is, I think, uh, another important aspect of this paper. It's only over the last decade or so that scientists have appreciated all that RNA does to regulate cells and the fact that it could be drugged. The way ribosil works could transfer to other infections. The mechanism, the idea to target a structured RNA, I think, would be transferable to many other 
non-coding RNAs that have defined structures. Uh, as it happens, HIV, so the, the causative agent of AIDS, contains a number of non-coding RNAs that have been studied uh, both in academia and industry for, for quite a while now as potential drug targets. Not, not very successfully, though. Uh, but So we have discovered a, a non-coding RNA target in hepatitis C that can be inhibited by a small molecule. Two things have to happen for a new drug to emerge. One, proof that it works. And two, a good business case for a drug company to spend the money on drug development. So finally, here's Thomas Herman with a reality check. There are many downsides for companies to invest in antibiotics discovery, and one of them is that the course of treatment is relatively short. And, and you know, that, as you're certainly aware of, there's a raging debate about pricing of, uh, of drugs. So when you have a drug that will be used maybe for only a course of treatment of two weeks and you want to recoup your investment during that time, the prices have to be fairly high. And so to invest in other therapeutic areas like in cancer or more chronic diseases, there might be a larger return on the investment. That was Thomas Herman of UCSD and before him, John Howe of Merck Research Labs in New Jersey. Find the paper and an analysis piece written by Thomas at nature.com nature. Coming up, why researchers are interested in virtual currencies like Bitcoin. Plus, in the news chat, the Volkswagen emissions scandal and Brazil's science funding woes. But first, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker. Great news for those with sun-sensitive skin. Adding nanoparticles to sunblock could boost its effects and make it more water-resistant. Sunscreen contains UV filters, compounds that block UV light. The nanoparticles attach to these UV filters and make them stickier on skin, even in water. The trick also stops the filters sinking into the skin, making the sunblock safer. Adding nanoparticles meant the cream could contain 20 times fewer UV filters and still absorb the same level of UV radiation as conventional creams. Tan lines? What tan lines? More in Nature Materials. Climate change is having some big effects. Ice caps melting, droughts, but also some tiny ones, as researchers studying bees' tongues have found. Yes, bees have tongues, and there are researchers who study them. Since the 1970s, tongue length has dropped by two millimetres. Researchers measured the tongues of bees living in the Rocky Mountains today and compared them to archived bees in museums. But it's not necessarily bad news for the bees. Shorter-tongued bees can access more flowers, and with climate change reducing the abundance of flowers, the adaptation could be helping the bees survive. More in science. And Noah isn't going anywhere just yet. Here he is again with a story of money. Money. Sometimes it comes in the form of treasure, gold doubloons and silver pieces of eight. The worth of these coins was the worth of the metal they were made of. But money doesn't have to have an intrinsic value. Paper banknotes don't cost much, but as a society, we agree that banknotes have value. Now that so many transactions happen online, our hard-earned hard cash may cease to exist in physical form at all, just as code. Money is this kind of completely fictional construct that we all rely on. This is journalist Andy Extens. Just a mutual belief in, you know, the emperor's new clothes. 
and he's been investigating a type of digital money called cryptocurrency, perhaps the most extreme version of our fictional financial constructs. The most famous of these, launched in 2009, is Bitcoin. At the time of recording, there are around 3.4 billion US dollars worth of Bitcoin in circulation, and that number is growing. Bitcoin even has its own academic journal, Ledger, which launched last month. The key difference between a cryptocurrency and a conventional currency is that a cryptocurrency operates without a central authority in charge. The design of the cryptocurrency is what makes that possible, using a technology which is called the blockchain. Okay, and, and this is vital to the functionality of Bitcoin. What is the blockchain? So the blockchain is a public record. It's akin in some ways to carving financial transactions on a stone wall. It's open for everyone to see, but it's really difficult to change improperly. And the cryptocurrencies, they share the production and the maintenance of the blockchain across a network of computers run by people in various different places, processing and recording the transactions anonymously, usually in return for a reward. To make sure the blockchain stays secure, each Bitcoin transaction is added to the chain and then encrypted. But not by a central agency, by a network of people and groups all running the Bitcoin software. They have to solve puzzles using data from the last block in the chain, and when they crack them, a new block is added. And they're rewarded for their efforts. You guessed it, they get Bitcoins. But Andy says it wasn't originally conceived as a system of paid work. The way that the inventor of Bitcoin, who's known only by the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto, the way he, I think, probably would have envisioned it is that individuals would just, you know, when they're not using their computer, give up some of their processor time to trying to solve these puzzles, much like you would do for um, some distributed computing projects like protein folding at home or SETI at home. But what's actually happened is because of the reward, people have started doing it in, in order to seek that reward. Nowadays, there are big computing set centers that are set up in Iceland, for example, um, where they get access to cheap cooling uh, that are specifically set up to do mining. Bitcoin has gone from strength to strength, and there are other cryptocurrencies out there that are, that are increasing in, in their strengths. I've never spent a Bitcoin, but in 20 years' time, am I going to be spending Bitcoins every day? Probably not. But um, there are applications for Bitcoins that make it really attractive for people like banks. A particular application is in international transactions. Uh, currently, if you want to make an international transaction, you have to go through a major bank. The law kind of specifies that you have to do this. But because Bitcoin has this strange status where it's not controlled by any specific authority. It kind of gets around those laws. By kind of going outside those major banks, it can undercut the fees that they charge. And so it can be a much cheaper way of making international transactions. And there are other efficiencies that come from how the blockchain works that may mean that Bitcoin protocols become underlying systems for how banking works but individuals may not end up using it. The 
technology behind Bitcoin and the blockchain holds opportunities far beyond just currency. Researchers are already looking into ways to use the blockchain to make uncorruptible voting systems or self-enforcing digital contracts. Whatever impact they may have, for Andy, the rise of cryptocurrencies is an interesting point to ponder. It is, it is mad, but you just think about things like television, radio, you know, beaming images into your home, beaming sound into your home. Bitcoin could very easily be the same kind of situation. It's like before it happened, you think it's weird, then it penetrates your life, and then it's just completely commonplace afterwards. That was Andy Extance talking to reporter Noah Baker. If you want to find out more, or even have a go at mining yourself, head over to bitcoin.org. Time now for our weekly news chat, and Lizzie Gibney joins us in the studio. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Adam. So our first story is regarding science funding in Brazil, which is having really quite a few knocks at the moment. That's right. And it's such a a pity because Brazil has been doing so well. They've been ploughing loads of money into science over the past decade or so and slowly been seeing all their kind of metrics rising in terms of numbers of publications and just the quality of science that they've been producing. But there's been a economic downturn that's just hit all of Brazil um, starting about last year. And then they've seen some really heavy cuts that really surprised me, actually, when I spoke to a lot of researchers who are working in Brazil, it's a really dire situation they seem to be facing at the moment. Uh, a lot of their funding schemes have been not cut for current grants, but there are just no new grants that are available. A lot of the kind of bread and butter funding that they rely on for um, the pay for their graduate programs and actually end up paying for you know things like reagents that they need in their labs and all, all other kinds of equipment, um, they just don't have a lot of that funding, um, let alone being able to uh, travel around conferences or or go abroad and, and boost the reputation of Brazilian science. So it's taking a knock from all directions, really. So is this just completely sudden? Last year were things fairly normal in terms of science funding in Brazil? The kind of the levels were climbing until about 2014 and then they're kind of static and then this year uh, there was just there was a big cut of more than 30% which hit, it was about halfway through the year suddenly the government realised we really need to do something. There were threats that the their, the credit agencies would downgrade them so they would have to pay a lot more um, on their debt uh, So they, and then they realised there was a lot of overspending and so they tried to rein everything in and pretty much every part of the Brazilian public spending has been has been slashed. And in this environment, they've they've also had to move around a lot of the, the funding. So they, they have a lot of money that comes from oil funds. Uh, and that, some of that used to go directly into science, but now that's being channeled into health and education. And how dire is it? Are labs having to close as a result of this? Not at the moment, as far as I know. Because of the previous funding, they're they're saying to me, well, maybe for a year we can we can stand this situation, maybe two. Um, but it also depends on who you are in that system. If you're a professor and you've got you know a dozen grants, you know a couple of them are going to come in, and maybe you've got long term grants. But if you're a student or if you're a recent PhD graduate, and there's just nothing open, it's unlikely you're going to go into science. You might end up just taking your PhD and finding a job wherever you can get it. I, th- I think we've seen cuts in lots of other economies to research, but it's hard to think of cases where the cuts have been this sudden and to such great extent. I agree. Like when we've, we've, we often have people saying, complaining to us, you know, in the UK, we have no growth in science funding. It's just static. And actually that means that inflation eats into it. But when people on the ground are saying it's not just 30%, but actually um, some streams are cut by up to 75%, 
And then there are loads of delays in the funding, which means maybe they're only getting half the money that they expected. I don't know how any organisation can work on half the money that it that it thought it'd be working on. So if the economy doesn't turn around, is there anywhere that Brazilian researchers and research groups can look for funding to plug those gaps? So the science ministry is, it sounds like it's really doing its best. So they've asked for a loan of $2 billion from the Inter-American Development Bank, um, which may or may not go through this year. On top of that, they're trying to claw back some of this this oil money. There's a there's a pot of it that hasn't yet been allocated, and they're saying we want that. And then and then they're just generally trying to promote how important science actually is for the future economy of Brazil. So there are ways that they're trying to think outside the box and and, and claw back some of this money. Another silver lining might be that people in government do realise the value of science a lot more than they may have done in the past. So I think there is reason to believe that um, that science will come out of it in decent shape, um, but we will have to see what happens. Now, moving on to our second story, this is the story that has been covered in many different news outlets, is the story about the Volkswagen emissions scandal. So what's actually so scandalous? Well, I thought this was quite scandalous when I first heard it. So this is the um, the revelations that Volkswagen um, have been effectively rigging their emissions testing. So there were differences in the results of their testing, whether they were done um, on rollers in the lab under these official um, conditions, which effectively the car could sense uh, versus when it was out on the road. And when they actually did test on the road, they found that the levels were much, much higher. And in some cases, rather than passing the emission standards test, they were something like 30 40 times higher. So recently on the podcast, we are covering a paper which tried to calculate the number of global deaths from air pollution worldwide. And I think for lots of people that brought home that air pollution isn't just an inconvenience. It's not just about air quality, but it's actually something serious to do with human health. That's right. So the the, the toxic fumes, the um, NOx gases in particular that diesel emissions produce have some really serious health effects. I think that study attributed something like more than 3 million deaths worldwide uh, to emissions. Now, it doesn't seem that unusual that something would perform differently on the road to how it would perform in a lab. So has this come completely out of the blue? Well, there have been several studies that have shown that on-the-road emissions exceeded the levels when they tested it in a lab. So there was a study in um, 2011, in fact, which was uh, funded by the European Commission, and it found that on average the on-road emissions of diesel vehicles exceeded the limits by about 14 times. Um, I'm not sure that anybody thought it was actually this kind of trickery going on. What's actually the scale of this scandal? How many cars could, in theory, be implicated and potentially have to be recalled? Well, it's so the tests were done in the US and it was almost half a million cars there. Uh, but worldwide, it could be as many as 11 million. Are Volkswagen the only company that has been implicated in this? They are certainly the only ones who have been implicated and who have indeed admitted it. But at least some experts have said that they find it very difficult to believe that Volkswagen are the only ones who are doing this, who are actively trying to uh, circumvent the emission standards in this way. Well, now that we know that Volkswagen's implicated, I guess there's going to be a lot of attention on them. But is there anything more broadly happening to try and make sure that diesel vehicles emit on the road what they emit in tests? So even before there was this whole scandal... Europe had had started to put in place some measures that they hoped would improve the quality uh, of emissions. So by 2017, the European Commission plans to establish a test you know, with real driving conditions, and that would be what they'd mandate for all passenger vehicles. Thanks for joining us, Lizzie. To read more about these two admittedly pretty worrying stories, head over to nature.com forward slash news. 
And if you need cheering up after all that, you can read about NASA's announcement of liquid water on Mars. Rumour has it Matt Damon soon to be found on Mars too. That's all from us this week, in audio at least, but check out our YouTube channel for two new video goodies, a mini-profile of a London academic who's rebuilt an ancient machine for predicting the movements of the planets, and a short and sweet film about bats being rather heavy drinkers. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. 